Please remain standing as well and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We'll be starting in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and going to verse 16 of chapter 10. Uh, As was said this morning, uh, if uh, you are feeling infirm as you stand, you may sit. We stand, however, in reverence for his word and our God. Uh, So please stand if you are able. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. 1 Samuel 9, starting in verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, more goodly than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise and go, look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalashana, but they, were not, they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, they did, were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring to the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answers Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when the man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. And as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw, Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you? 
and for all your father's house. Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought him them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, for who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then, at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has, pa- when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of the Lord. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince or leader over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And and they will say to you, The donkeys that you want to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come into the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. When all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servants, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. The psychology of humans in nearly absolute power is the subject of nearly endless entertainment. Simply watch The Godfather and you'll understand what I mean by that. This has always been the case in human history and especially so for kings. Like in Shakespeare's historical plays, there's at once a real likability to these kingly characters. There's a natural giftedness that cannot be denied, but at the same time, darkness. In the life of many kings, they've killed their brothers, fathers, mothers, and closest friends to solidify the crown. They have some of the most dramatic, complex, extreme, and self-contradictory characters in all of history. And Saul is a king that is no different than this. In fact, Saul is among the most complex and interesting characters in all of scripture. His raw human potential is unmatched, even exceeding David. He's he's gifted, likable, sometimes even humble, and yet for all that sunshine, he often in his folly runs to the valley of death. Yet in our section of scripture, we see Saul as a young man before he was ever taken up into the kingly role, a likable, humble, and immensely talented young man who got far more than he bargained for one day looking for his father's property. Saul's beginning as a king is unsought for. He was looking for his donkeys, for his father's donkeys, not to be king. He was not aspiring to be king. He was looking for nothing more than his father's lost property. Yet, what he found was kingship as the people's choice chosen by God, which is our first section. The people's choice is chosen by God, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 9. Although the people's choice, the Lord had plans for Saul. It is not as if Saul again went out looking for kingship. It came to him by the Lord. This ought to give us pause. In 1 Samuel 8, we discussed that this king which they yearned for, that this king that Israel yearned for, would be the king of Israel's selection, which was to be the king like all the nations, to fight their battles, God warned Israel in 1 Samuel 8, their selection was to be their suffering. In short, of course, you will serve the king as slaves and he will not serve you. Yet, here we see the Lord has plans for Saul. In fact, the name Saul means asked for in Hebrew. Does this mean that Saul is the king of the Lord's choosing and not of the people's choosing? Simply to say that Israel's king will be the king of Israel's desire does not mean that God stops being sovereign. In fact, God has prepared Saul as king in his sovereign will to conform to the priorities Israel sinfully has for their king and fulfill their desires as they requested. Saul is the king of Israel's request in 1 Samuel 8, sovereignly selected by God to fit their sinful desires. Saul is the perfect king according to Israel's earthly criteria, prepared and selected by God to perfectly fit their idea. These criteria are explained to us from verse 1 onward. First, Saul is the son of a wealthy, established family. 
as verse 1 tells us, of course. Second, Saul is literally goodly. It says handsome in the ESV and strong in appearance, as verse 2 tells us. In fact, he was by far the tallest man in all of Israel. He was goodly physically. Third, he followed his father's instructions to go out and find the donkeys that were lost in submission to authority and was a decisive man who followed good counsel even from slaves. The young man that came with him. Find this in verses 5 through 10 where Saul's servant counsels him to ask the prophet or seer, the one who sees, about the donkeys before returning to his father. This is good counsel. These are all admirable qualities kingly qualities even. Saul is indeed gifted. There is no doubt about this in 1 Samuel 9 through 10, or even all of Saul's story. Saul is gifted, yet for all his gifting, there are some things, even now in this story, that seem off, which will be a consistent theme throughout Saul's tragic story. He lacks the graces, which ought to be a part of the Israelite king as we saw in Deuteronomy 17 last time. First, we see in verses 5 through 10 that he seemingly has no idea who this man of God is, who is obviously Samuel. Saul and his servant do not once use God's covenant name, Yahweh, but consistently use the generic term God to describe who this man serves. It is quite strange that a young man of so much potential and proximity to Rama. Samuel's place of rule, where this probably is, knows nothing of Samuel, the ruling judge of Israel, nor avails himself of Israel's privilege to call the true God by his name, Yahweh. From these words alone, we cannot be certain of Saul's unworthiness to be king, by no means, but Saul does not seem to have God at the center of his life and will. His decision-making is not based upon God's counsel, but upon whatever seems good to him. So he says in verse 10, after hearing his servant's counsel, well said. It's here that we ought to pause and think and learn a few things from this narrative. First, those whom God chooses to be leaders have first and foremost to have graces and then gifts. What I mean is that the pastoral epistles Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus were filled with instructions on criteria for those seeking church office. And we find there gifts like able to teach, that is a gift, but overwhelmingly we find graces. In fact, in the same verse, we find the criteria able to teach, in verse Timothy 3, we find six other criteria, all of which are graces. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. The problem with Israel's selection is that they make their priority for someone's worth, gifting. In Israel's mind, a king is primarily gifted. Graces are certainly nice, but they're not as important. As we'll see with David, God's priorities are exactly the opposite. Graces are primary and gifting is secondary. However, just as we will see with David, graces often mean the bestowal of gifting. David was twice the warrior that Saul was with all his gifts, but lesser in the earthly metrics of potential gifting and stature. We see this same switching of gifting and graces in celebrity pastors. 
Instead of looking at our pastors through the lens of the criteria of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus, we look at our pastors through the lens of gifting and practical output. Ah, look at the good that they have done, these people say. Look at the leadership skills that he exhibits while he scandalizes the Lord's glory with his conduct. Saul's live in our own day, and they thrive when, like Israel, we prioritize gifting over graces. But God was here going to teach Israel a lesson about their choice of a leader. God says, yes, let us use your criteria and find the most gifted boy in Israel, the boy with the, the most potential, yet with only a smattering of graces, of godly graces, and call Saul to be anointed. And this is our second section, the temporary anointing, the Holy Spirit of Saul, for enabling to do the work of God's choosing. This is verses, or rather chapter 9, verse 15 to the end, meaning 10, 16. After some young women outside the city explain what's going on in the city and how one is invited to the man of God's feast, which is an honor of the very few, Saul goes into the gate and immediately is met by Samuel. Samuel had it revealed to him by God that this day he would find Israel's future king, as verses 15 and 16 tell us. The king was to be selected for a reason as well, as we find here in verse 16. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. God still loves Israel and will use Saul for some good, as we'll see especially the defense of Israel from the Philistines. Some good. God tells Samuel upon seeing Saul, verse 17, Here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. And the word here used for restrain is used in this sense, to hold back or even to keep from moving forward. Saul would be a hindrance to the progress that the Lord could have given to Israel had they not asked for such a foolish thing as a merely gifted king like all the nations. Samuel has really a very simple direction from God towards this man. You shall anoint him to be prince or leader over my people. And again, the Lord did not leave the choosing up to Samuel. When Saul is in view, God says, here's the man of whom I spoke to you. It's interesting that Samuel does not simply anoint Saul in the simple, abrupt manner that he does David, as we'll see in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel goes through all this rigmarole of inviting him to a feast, giving him the best seat and the best food and a bed to sleep in without Samuel explicitly telling him his intention to make him king. This will become a theme until the death of Samuel, that Samuel really loves Saul. And it seems he loves him almost immediately once he sees him, perhaps after mourning over the failure of his own sons. Samuel desires to fix this youth with all his potential and all of his gifting. Later on, God even chides Samuel for how much he grieves over Saul in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel experiences the heights of emotion with Saul. Despite the doom lying over Saul's kingship, Samuel takes Saul under his wing and loves him, almost as if he were his own son. So we see him be kind and hospitable and to seek to set up this new king by allowing him to rub shoulders with the influential people of Zuf and of Samuel's inner circle. And in some way, this is very well, in fact. So for Saul is not only young, but because he is from the tribe of Benjamin, 
it would seem he has a long road to the throne. We see Saul acknowledge this, actually, in verse 21, when he says, um, seemingly very humbly, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? Why have you spoken to me in this way? As Samuel had spoken to him of everything that is good in the kingdom will be his. If we understand Israelite history, we understand that Saul is actually telling the truth to us. And Benjamin is indeed the least of the tribes of Israel. Benjamin is certainly small, if that's what we mean by least, but for a reason. Benjamin was so evil during the time of the judges that all of Israel fought a civil war against them, as we see in Judges 20, and nearly annihilated them. The annihilation of Benjamin and the pride of Benjamin was so great that they were reduced to a mere 600 people in this story. But Benjamin did not sue for peace or repent of their sin. They were prideful and militant. Israel, in fact, had compassion on Benjamin and proclaimed a peace to them. These were independent thinkers, minds who listened to their own counsel and historically leaned upon their own understanding and a people Israel was highly prejudiced against. So that Saul's road to the throne would seem long. Therefore, this certainly, because of where he is coming from in Benjamin, of their characteristics, this certainly is the resourceful, prideful, and militant man Israel desires, even if he is from Benjamin, and God selects him for that reason. As a preview of the character of his reign, Samuel tells Saul, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel, is it not for you and for your father's house? Saul will have his fill of earthly things. He will take the kingship and take from Israel what he desires. But Saul's answer is humble. Saul is a person. He's not some demon, but a man who sometimes does the right thing, although so often for the wrong reasons. Samuel assures this dutiful son that his father's donkeys have been found. And after the feast and after a night of good rest, Samuel calls Saul and they set on their way to Benjamin, separating themselves from Saul's servant for this reason, as we see in verse 27, that I may make known to you the word of God. After Saul is anointed, Samuel tells him that three signs will happen to him as proof that Yahweh has anointed you to be prince over his heritage, verse 1 of chapter 10. First, two men will find him near Rachel's tomb and tell him his father's donkeys are found and he is anxious to find his son alive. Second, he will go to the oak of Tabor and receive from there three, or from three men rather, going up to God at Bethel, two loaves of bread, which they only had three among them. And that is not very much for a long journey. Something this, like this would normally not happen. And third, most importantly, he will go to a place called the Hill of God, where he will join a group of prophets, and the Holy Spirit will come upon him, and he will prophesy. As Samuel says, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and he will prophesy and with them and be turned into another man. This third sign is very important. The first and the second certainly happened, as it tells us in this text, but they are not recorded in great detail in scripture to focus on the importance of this third sign because it shows the meaning of anointing, which is the power of the Holy Spirit descending upon a man that he might be equipped for God's work. The power of the Holy Spirit descending upon a man to be equipped. 
Now, in Saul's case, he was given the gifting of prophesying, at least at this point, of speaking the Lord's will to the people as a sign that the Holy Spirit had indeed come upon him. Not unlike Pentecost in Acts 2, people saw this prophesying in Saul, and they doubted him. They asked, verse 11, is Saul also among the prophets? This is actually to throw doubt upon Saul's selection as the Lord's anointed, as it became a a proverb later on, not by only these people, but by the whole nation. People doubt Saul is truly the anointed one, the king of God's choosing. And as they attribute his prophesying to something else, perhaps alcohol, other than the Holy Spirit, they say as a proverb in verse 12, is Saul also among the prophets. As we were saying earlier, it seems that Saul's road to the throne will be long and difficult. It is probably Saul's self-deprecation that keeps him from defending and proclaiming his kingship and anointing. This is really not a good thing. If God has chosen you to be king, then why are you to be silent? He actively avoids telling his uncle about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, verse 16. This is the point. Saul had been anointed with oil, not as a sign of his kingship. There were three signs that had been given, but anointing was not one of them. Prophets, priests, and yes, kings were the only people in Israelite society who were anointed with oil to be equipped for the hard work which God had given them to do for the good of Israel and the glory of his name. Saul, running from his duty, which God had given to him, and which Samuel had characterized very broadly in verse 7 of chapter 10 as, do whatever your hand finds to do for God is with you, This is the duty which he was called. He is run from these things in doubting the power of God. If God has given you a duty and we are gifted by the Holy Spirit to do it, then we ought to not let our self-deprecation get in the way. This is the false modesty, false humility that we will see sometimes in, in Saul. Do the work that you have been gifted to do and trust God. Do not hide or demure Do not do the work of your gifting by the Holy Spirit, for we too have been anointed, brothers and sisters. As we come to the third section, the Holy Spirit anointing Christians through the anointing of Jesus Christ. We are anointed too. We are anointed to do the work of Christ, the Messiah. Messiah and Christ both mean anointed one. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit when he was baptized, as the Holy Spirit himself descended upon Jesus Christ, equipping him for the work of prophesying, for the work of sacrificing himself as a priest, and the work of kingly authority. And we, united to Christ, have been anointed along with Jesus, so says John in 1 John 2.27. But the anointing that you received from him, that is Christ, abides in you. We are called Christians, brothers and sisters. Christian means little Christ, and Christ means anointed one. So that to say that we are Christians is to say that we are little anointed ones in the image of Jesus, our Savior. This ought to be a wonderful revelation of God's overwhelming grace and love to us. The Holy Spirit came upon Paul in these chapters, but he did not remain upon Saul. 
The Holy Spirit left Saul, as we'll find later on in Saul's story, because he sinned against God. Even this great Saul, the the gifted of all the gifted of Israel, failed to keep the Holy Spirit by his works. Are you more gifted than Saul? Were, if you were up to it, could you keep the Holy Spirit grieving him as you do by your works? No, that is why the gift of our salvation depends entirely, not upon gifting, but upon God's grace. You cannot keep the Holy Spirit any more than Saul could by his works. But Christian, the Holy Spirit is yours not because of you, but because you are already saved and united to Christ Jesus, who anoints you to live a life of gratitude, not to purchase your salvation or purchase the Holy Spirit by your works. The Holy Spirit is often spoken in terms of Christ's relation to him, as we see in Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit that Christ gives, once given by Christ to us, anoints us and equips us for the work to set out for us to do. His gifts are spiritual giftings and strength to carry them out. But be encouraged, you cannot lose the Holy Spirit. Saul's gifting was a gifting that all the nations desired of power, but the gifting of the Holy Spirit is that we are given righteousness and united to Christ. We are given gifts that we might bless others. He gives us spiritual giftings and strength to carry them out, but be encouraged, you cannot lose the Holy Spirit, for he does not depend upon your righteousness to indwell you, but upon Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone. What this means is that you can do your work well, Because you have been consecrated by the Holy Spirit to do it. And doing that work, you will not lose him. Do not run from your work like Saul, but trust in the Holy Spirit's power as a Christian. Do the work of a father. Do the work of a mother. Do the work of a surgeon. Do the work of a construction worker. Whatever is before you, for God is with you. If you have been gifted to do it, then the Holy Spirit will empower you, however weak you are, to do that work for that time. Do not point to your nature. Point to the Holy Spirit. Do not point to your giftings in yourself. Point to the Holy Spirit and do the duties that you have been given by God. Unlike unlike Saul, Christians do not attempt to use the Holy Spirit's power for your own shameful gain and your own promotion. We are not anointed for our upright walking. We are not anointed because we are upright, but because of Christ's upright walking. And when we repent and have faith in him, we may have that righteousness as well. Praise God that our salvation does not depend on our giftedness, or else the most gifted of us would fall like Saul. But upon Christ we depend who saves us and makes us eternally anointed for our glad work that we would be held from falling by the very Holy Spirit of promise. May that day come soon where we will see him and be kept and guarded 
by faith in the Holy Spirit. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you that we have indeed been anointed. We've been anointed for the great work of glorifying your name in everything that we do, whether we think it is great or small, whether we have false humility and demure. We pray, Lord, that whatever our hands find to do, that we would do them and do it well, as you have given us power by your Holy Spirit to do. We thank you for the anointing that you have given us in Christ. For, Lord, it is by his work and his finished work that we can trust that he will never leave us. That this is no temporary anointing, as was the case with Saul, but an eternal anointing where we will be with you, our God, for all time. We thank you, Lord, that this salvation, that even our gifting, does not depend upon us, but depends upon the grace of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would come soon that we would glorify you, that we would see you as you are, and Lord, that we might not sin against you any longer, and we might not grieve the Holy Spirit. Keep us in step with the Spirit, Lord, we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.